0: Uh, We are going to read from Matthew chapter 4 and then we're going to pray. The scripture says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, speaking of Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, And the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father we come before you this morning to ask you to work in our hearts and our lives, to ask you by your word to speak to us, to convict us of our sins, and to convict us of Jesus' righteousness, which we need to cancel out our sins when we believe in his sacrifice on the cross. And we pray that you would also Teach us, Father, of the fact that you care for us and love us and you desire to make our paths straight. And so as we trust in you, we pray that you would teach us these things. Make us wise in your word. Father, we lift up the Rajput people of India 45 Almost 46 million people, the number to me is unimaginable. And though the Bible is in their language, and they believe in many gods, your word can triumph among them. And so we pray that you would call them to yourself. We pray that you would send people among them and that they would be drawn to you. And even now, Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that through the proclamation of your word, through the teaching of it, that we would hear the truth of the word of God and we would be drawn to you, Lord. And we pray that we would see this as a matter of first principle and of primary importance. That we would, we would set this truth from this passage as a foundation stone of our Christian life and our faith. And that we would build All things on it, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, Nancy and I dropped off uh, two of our kids a while back. And um, we were headed to New Jersey to spend some time with family. And uh, so in an unusual turn of events, we were driving my car. We normally take Nancy's car. And when we take Nancy's car, a lot of times I will bring a book and I will read and do all kinds of things. But when it's my car, I drive because it's my car. And so we're on our way to New Jersey. And, uh, and as we're, we're moving along, you know, dealing with the usual types of things, uh, we need to get coffee, we need to get lunch, you know, kids stop fighting, those kinds of routine things that you encounter during a road trip, uh, a gentleman just or a, a, some kind of law-breaking, you know, person, I'm going to try not to use too strong language, um, just kind of sped past me on, on the right and, uh, and moved in front of me rapidly. And, and suddenly, you know, the, the, uh, the sensors start going off in your head like this is going to be bad. And, and the, uh, the people, a couple cars in front of us, braked and I had to pull into the ditch, you know, uh, to, to avoid um, uh, smashing into the back of this car. And suddenly, I was very aware of the fact that I was driving. You know how you can, you can drive and you're not so aware of the fact that you're driving? You know, you can, you can get to work and on the way to work you're thinking about all the things that you've got to do. And, and it's, just, it's just kind of going on in your brain. And you get to work and, and you might think like, wow, you know, I didn't even notice where, what I was driving past. Um, but, but when you get checked like that when you are reminded of what you're doing and how important it is that you pay attention, uh, you, you, you start to notice all kinds of things. It becomes very vivid for you. Um, we're going we're to see Jesus begin his preaching ministry, and, and I believe that it's, it's a, a good principle to, to hear something that's said as a foundational principle of someone's preaching or teaching, and then to carry that through all they say, throughout the rest of the Bible, throughout the rest of, of, the, of, of, the, of the book that we're in. And so Jesus' preaching ministry is built on a principle that we're going to see today, um, and that's going to flavor and color everything. And, and people who heard him speak, who heard him preach, I, I believe it was an alert that they were checked, they were reminded of the truth of God's word and, and, and everything that they heard from him that flowed from that was then vivid and, and real and they, and they didn't neglect the, the, the details of what he was saying. So I want to look at two things in this passage and then uh, we'll, we'll, look at, we'll look at the two things. Uh, the first is that Jesus makes a strategic retreat. He makes a strategic retreat and then he begins to uh, teach a pointed message. Okay. We see in verse 12, it says, When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Um, Jesus, being a man, yes, he was fully man, and he is fully God, does not know all things that are, are going to happen. The Lord teaches him things. The Lord shows him things. Sometimes he has supernatural knowledge. Other times he, he does not seem to know what's coming Perhaps he knew that something was going to happen to John. But when John is arrested, this serves as some kind of reality check for Jesus. Uh, And he decides to move out of the region where he was living. And he moves into a region called Galilee. He moves away. He moves uh, uh, back and and away from the danger that, that John was in. John was arrested because he was very bold and very critical. Of the lifestyle of the current ruler of Judea, Herod Antipas, who was who was in a relationship with his brother's divorced wife, um, they were they were carrying on having this affair, and it was public knowledge. But nobody dares to criticize a king like Herod because we are we are not living in, a, in an era of. of Uh, equitable courts we're living in an era where if the king says you go to jail you go to jail Um, and so john is jailed with the forerunner's work complete you'll remember that john is his ministry is to reveal that jesus is messiah um, that he is the one when when his work is complete and he moves off the scene the king is then ready to appear publicly but as he begins his public ministry, he withdraws. <clears throat> he moves from Nazareth, where he was living, and he was probably traveling and, and in the region of where, um, where John was and going up to temple. He withdraws and moves and makes his base of operations a town called Capernaum. And he moves to this particular place, and this is where his ministry is going to begin. Why does he withdraw? He withdraws to get away, I believe, from the religious leaders in Jerusalem who would, who would later support his arrest as they likely supported the arrest of John, even if they didn't actively resist it uh, and, and in that way supported him. John had, had, had no qualms saying that the religious leaders were Pharisees, that they were snakes, that they were hypocrites. And so they probably did not like him. Matthew is careful to point out here that his move is to a place of prophetic significance. And we see that in the quote from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. And he moves to a place of, of some international influence. There are Gentiles who are living there, and so Jesus is going to be mixing it up with both Jews and Gentiles. Why is this seen as a movement from, from, uh, or a, a some kind of incredible prophetic significance. It says that the people who are dwelling in darkness have, have seen a great light. When, when this passage was originally uh, pronounced, the, the, uh, the meaning for the people who heard it at first was that the oppression of the Assyrians would be lifted, that they would be delivered from the threat. Uh, they were under Assyrian oppression, but now the people are under Roman oppression, and they learn that Messiah has come. And that Messiah has come to call them to himself. That Messiah has come to preach to Jews, and eventually, it'll be realized, to Gentiles in the darkest of places. Far from the squeaky, clean, righteous, uh, religious environment of Jerusalem. In the darkest of places, Messiah is here to call not the righteous, as it says in Matthew 9, 3, but sinners. And so in darkness, light begins to dawn. They dwell in a place called the shadow of death because there's a physical threat? No, because the spiritual threat to their lives is beyond measure. They live in darkness. Their minds are darkened. Their behavior is darkened. No one would say, let's move to that place because it's a good environment. You move to Jerusalem if you want to live someplace that's religious and and righteous. You don't move to Galilee. In Galilee, the darkness was ignorant. But they would receive him gladly when he came and brought truth to them. In Jerusalem, the darkness was rebellion. They were self-righteous. They were convinced of their goodness. And when the message came they would kill him. We are treated to just kind of an overview of where we are. The beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is a uh, list of the king's credentials, okay, we're just catching up, we've got a break, so we're just going to fast forward, uh, remind us where we are. Uh, the king's credentials are his legal heritage, right, he comes in the line of Abraham and David, he was adopted formally by Joseph, that's what that whole don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife dream is about, and so he's the legal heir of David. Then he has these, oh, look at you, bring me water, yes, yeah. yes, thank you, do you deliver it in Jesus' name? Yes. Then you've done it to him, right? Thank you. Next time, Tim, you know, engage your usual boldness and just be like, "Drink this." Thank you. I, I it, it took me a second to notice you there. It took me longer, probably. Anyway, ah, so good. Um, so he comes in chapter two. We see his prophetic qualifications, where he's born, in what what line he comes, um, and then we see his public identification: John the Baptist baptizes him and reveals him for who he is. The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit rests on him. And then we see in an even more odd turn that the devil identifies him as the son of God. Not saying if you are the son of God and you're not, but if you are the son of God and you are, turn these stones into bread. And then we see not just that this man has the right to reign on the throne because of who he is but we see because of his moral identity he has the right to reign in chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 and so his ministry begins now in chapter 4 at this point the ministry of Jesus begins he's actually done with the exception of resisting temptation he's done very little we've not seen Jesus do much but now his ministry is going to kick into high gear Um, And so we'll see the king present himself in chapter uh, 4, verses 12 through 16. He presents himself to Galilee. He's going to move there. And then we see the general tone of his preaching in verse 17. And this is our second uh, section that we're going to look at this morning. This is Jesus' pointed message. His message comes, and it's not just, you know, happiness and rainbows and unicorns and lollipops. There's an edge to the message here. He comes not just to say, peace, peace, but to warn the people about the future. He'll move from this message and call four disciples to himself and then begin to teach. But I believe that everything he's going to say in chapter 5, verse 1 to the end of chapter 7, all of it, all of it is built on the message of 4.17. So this is the general tone of Jesus' preaching. This is what it says. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When, when it says that he began to preach, this means that this is a new phase of the ministry. We'll find a, a turn like this happen in chapter 16, verse 21, right? What happens there in chapter 16? They say, uh, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, they say that you're John the Baptist, they say that you're Jeremiah, and then he said, but who do you say that I am? And what does Simon say? He says, you are the Son of God that's who you are. And he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. God's revealed this to you. And it says, from that time, Jesus began to teach them something else. He began to teach them that he was going to Jerusalem, and there he was going to die. So that was a new phase of his ministry. Um, This was a a new phase of what was going to happen. This is the beginning of his message, a change in, in what he was doing with his life. Now he's actively teaching and preaching. He is a rabbi, a teacher, and he's calling people to believe his message. What is that message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, if you look at the original language, this is a a direct quote, uh, or, or the verbatim message that John was preaching. Does Jesus come with John's message? No, John came with Jesus' message. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. What is Jesus speaking of when he speaks about the kingdom? He's speaking about the fact that when he comes into the world, he creates a spiritual kingdom. He's creating a place where God rules and reigns. He is is offering people an opportunity to move out of what is called in the book of Colossians, the domain of darkness, and to be in the kingdom of his blessed son. To be in a place where there is connection and relationship with God. In his first coming, this is a purely spiritual kingdom, and it exists as a spiritual kingdom to this day. But when he comes again, he will establish that reign, and it will begin here on earth, and it will last into eternity. And many people argue about what that exactly is going to look like. It's going to be a thousand years on earth. Yes. Will it be um, a a kingdom that, that starts and eternity will start? Uh, it, it will rain, last into eternity, but I'm not going to pound the pulpit and argue about things that are going to happen in the future other than to know that when Christ comes, he will come as king and he will reign. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is at hand. It is, it is here. And the idea is is this, that that when the kingdom arrives... When the kingdom comes, when the kingdom is here on earth, those who are in the kingdom, who are citizens of the kingdom, will live. And those who are not citizens of the kingdom, they will be judged, right? If if I were in my house, and I'm not in my house, I'm here, but if I were in my house and and all the lights were off, right? And let's just, no, let's let's say it this way, okay? Um, If I were in someone else's house, and, and the, the citizens, you'll know why in a second, and the citizens or the dwellers of that house were all in a room and the lights were out, right? And, and it just so happened that this house was not very clean and there were other citizens of the house, right? And they were all out in the room and they were all wandering around, little, little eight-legged citizens and little four-legged citizens all walking around. Uh, and you flip the light on, what happens? The, the people who belong and live there stay still but all the creatures that don't scurry and run away. Why? Because they they know that they need to hide. When the kingdom comes in all of its glorious purity, what will happen is that those who are not citizens of the kingdom will be judged. This is what Jesus will say over and over again, but those who are part of his kingdom will celebrate and be secure. And the message that Jesus comes with is you do not need to be destroyed. You can be at peace with God. You can be right with God. How? By obeying the command of Jesus here. And the obedience takes the form of repentance. We must repent because the kingdom of God is at hand because it's coming. So what is repentance what does it mean to repent? Let's, um, let's ask, or let's answer the question first, what repentance is not. What is not repentance? Repentance, the idea, in, in the Greek it means a change of mind, it means to change uh, your thinking about something, but not just, not just to think, like, today... I will not drink water today. I will drink iced tea. It's not just kind of a preference kind of a mind. It's, it's I'm headed in this direction, and now I'm going to turn, and I'm going to head in this direction. It's a, it's a, a flipping, a, a changing of course. Um, that's what the word means. But many people think it's just a, a change in their thinking about something, uh, you know, just, just an alteration. Something needs to be, to be a little bit different. And so we make some mistakes when we think about repentance. Repentance is not a condition which leads a man to believe that his sins are great. That's not, not the whole thing. But, but it's not a condition that leads a person to believe that their sins are so great that Christ cannot or will not pardon them. There are some people who come under religious conviction and they hear the, the preaching of righteousness in God's word and they, and they hear the laws and the commands and they hear specific things that they should not do and they say, I've, I've done those things. And then they, they think about things that they, they, they should have done and they've heard about them and they think, I've not done those things. And so they think, my sin is so great. How can Christ forgive me? That is not repentance. That is an undervaluing, a refusal to believe in a primary point of the gospel, and that's that Jesus' blood has tremendous merit before God. It is the most valuable thing in the universe. Jesus comes into the world and he goes to the cross as a completely, utterly pure and righteous human, and he dies for the sins of the whole world. And when he dies for the sins of the world, the blood of Christ then speaks louder than the sins of men. And when they believe in Jesus, when we put our faith and trust in him, all the times that you have messed up and failed and disobeyed and rebelled, if you've put your faith and trust in Christ as your substitute or as your exchange, as Bruce said, your sins will be forgiven. And so repentance is, is, is not saying, oh, my sins are so great. Who can save me? That's not repentance. Second, repentance is not a, a, a condition of distress where we dwell upon the consequences of our sin and not on our sin itself. We may think, whoa, I've, I've sinned. I've sinned against God. There's a division between God and I. God will come and he will judge me. And I'm going, to be, I'm going to be judged. And what will hell be like? Hell will be like burning forever in fire. But the Bible says that hell is dark. And so it's dark fire for eternity. And they're screaming and weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. And, and I, don't, I don't want that. No. That's not repentance either. That's, that may be conviction of sin. That may be a reasonable thing to think about. But it's not repentance Spurgeon has said that often the devil beats the drums of hell in the ears of man so that he won't hear the sweet sound of the gospel. Focusing on difficulties and on penalties and on punishment and not focusing on what we are called to is a problem. Listen to the parable that Jesus tells as he he clarifies this idea. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 28, he says, what do you think? This is uh, in Jesus' week of controversy. He's speaking to to the religious leaders and authorities. And so um, he's speaking to people who understand and know the scriptures very well. What do you think? He says, a man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, this is the first son, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said to the same, and, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, This is the crowd, these are the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are answering him. They said, The first. Well, Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Because who is this crowd who's answering him? The, the, the crowd that's entering into the kingdom of God are the ones who say, I will not do what you say. And they rebel and refuse, but then they change their mind and begin to do the things that their father commands. But the first group says, we will obey. We are obeying, even though in their hearts and their minds, they're not. They're they're focusing instead that that they need to demonstrate some kind of outward conformity so that when Messiah comes, they will not be punished. So that they will not be judged while not rearranging and changing the inward heart this group of tax collectors and prostitutes which followed Jesus, they heard the word of God. And when conviction came, they did not focus just on how bad they had been and how unforgivable they were. They didn't focus on the distress of punishment. But when Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel, when he offered them salvation, they said, I will take it. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Finally, repentance is not a minimizing of sin, which sees Christ and his death and concludes that sin is no big deal at all. That it's no, no, no big problem in the eyes of God. That, that if God is willing to forgive sins, if God says, don't do these things. If he lays out the commandments for us and we break them and we're, we're saying, oh, punishment and judgment will, will come upon me. And then we hear the gospel, God is willing to forgive. We then think then these commands must not be that significant. But true repentance does not allow us to think lightly of our past sins. We ought not to be overwhelmed with a sense of unforgivability in the Christian life, but we ought to feel a godly sorrow over our past. And so there's a virtue, I believe, in in, in preaching and teaching and rebuking that has a bit of a sting in it. If you've got a friend who has uh, frequent patterns of behavior and they, and they continually get on this, this track where you can see them and it's like, oh, here they go again. They're headed off to commit that same sin. you know, That same pattern again, I see it. And you go to them and, and you, you rebuke them and they say, God's forgiven me, what are you trying to do? Understand that there's, there's, there's goodness in humbly coming to someone and saying, do not go this way. Because you're you're reminding them of of how they lived in the past before they repented. You're asking them to to experience godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 8 says this, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, Paul's talking about 1 Corinthians. He wrote 1 Corinthians and he said, You guys are going to be judged for the way that you're living. You need to fix things up because things are, are not right in your fellowship. So he says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Why? Though I did regret it because I saw that the letter grieved you only for a while, right? Our goal ought not to be to upset people, um, but but for for the purpose or the result of what happens when they are upset. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. We didn't hurt you when we rebuked you, when we stung you. Instead, it profited you, is what Paul is saying. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. The grief of the world says, before the preaching of the law and the truth of God, the grief of the world says, I am unforgivable. The grief of the world says, well, if I want to avoid eternal punishment, then I'll trust in the gospel, but this is not really what I want. The grief of the world says, thank God that Jesus sent, uh, God sent Jesus to forgive my sin. Sin must not be that big a deal. I could, I could do whatever I want. That's the grief of the world and that produces death because it is for the wrong purpose. Verse 11, Paul goes on and he says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Also, the eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote you and it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. They heard Paul's rebuke and they said, we're going to obey Paul who teaches us right. We're gonna follow the truth and we're gonna walk in holiness. We're going to repent. And so let me just, let me just say something about rebuking and, and, and stinging those around us. Nowadays, talking about sin and talking about unrighteousness and, and going to somebody and say, Saying, I think you're messing up your life right here I think you' I think your behavior is off you know I think that you need to you need to make an adjustment you need to make a change we don't like this this is not a uh, in in the list of ways to win friends and influence people right this is not um, uh, something that is is viewed as building close relationships but it is an essential part of helping brothers and sisters to walk in god's way and so we ought to use the tool of rebuke. We ought to share and teach principles and point out behavior which is inconsistent with God's way. But as we do it, look at the way Paul conducted himself when he rebuked. And look at the way Jesus deals with those who come to him with remorse over their sin. And as a parent, have a care Try to work for your child's heart. Gentle, firm prying may open a, a door where, where a hammer just won't work, right? Does that make sense? We, we rebuke, but we rebuke with a, with a mind to, to changing the path, not to, not to destroying the spirit. When you teach, if you are a teacher on any level, whether it's in a school or in a, uh, in, in a church environment, ask yourself, what is the goal when I'm issuing correction. A kind of grief that produces change, not grief that produces utter brokenness. Um, there, there's a, a passage in the book of First Kings where where the the, the king Rehoboam is, is rebuking the people for wanting the load of labor to be lightened. Uh, First Kings twelve eleven it says, "And now my father laid on you a heavy yoke, and I'm going to add to your yoke." He says, "My father disciplined you with with whips, but I'll discipline you with." scorpions. Uh, the idea of, of, of using a scorpion with a poisonous sting as a whip to motivate people to, to do, to, to behave this harsh discipline. Um, I listened to a sermon as I was leaving seminary, you know, like right before I graduated, a sermon by a guy named Don Whitney called the Rehoboam Principle. The idea that, that when you're a leader of people, when you're a pastor, you ought not regularly be whipping them and saying, you horrible people. You don't do this. You don't do that. You're doing them and tearing them down. Passion. Yes, but 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 hurting people. No, and uh, and so we ought not to whip them with scorpions. And he says you ought not to use a whip either. You should be gentle, and encouraging and draw them on. And I saw Don Whitney once at a conference, and I went up to him and I said, Hey, I said you preach this great message that I listened to. I said it was fantastic. It was about about encouraging people and not not being a, a constant downer. And he was like, oh thank you for that brother. And I was like, cool, compliment. Disengage. And he's like, so how's it going? And I was like, what? And he's like, how are you doing? And I thought, you're a busy guy, you're just gonna be like, that's cool, you know, and walk off. No, he was like, he, he was fully engaged, ready. Like, okay, you know, thank you for the compliment. Now them. It's it a great moment. Uh, I, thought, I thought, that's valuable that you care about the fruit of what your rebuke meant. Because he was rebuking pastors who, who whip their people. We ought to make sure as parents and teachers and leaders and as those who share the gospel with other people that we are not whipping them but that we are drawing them along on the road to repentance. God is not pleased with sin. He is pleased with with rooting it up in individual lives. That is his goal, to to demonstrate that there ought to be a a, a sense of of despair and sadness over sin that leads to a change of heart and mind. 2 Peter 3.8 begins this way, Do not overlook this fact, this fact, one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Somehow we have yanked this passage out of its context and turned it into uh, something speaking about evolution and creation. Um, but the, but the, the primary focus of the passage here is, is about the fact that the time passing is not as significant or it doesn't feel the same to God as it does to us. A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. So when the Lord is thinking about about coming back and judging, fulfilling his word, he's not thinking this has taken a whole lot of time. Look at what verse 9 says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be dissolved it will be exposed. Judgment will come. Why is God delaying judgment because he is compassionate and desires that people repent of their sins? Since, he says in verse 11, "Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? If God is patient and kind and compassionate and willing to forgive those who come to Him in repentance, then how should we respond? How should we lead and share with others? When we, when we choose to share the gospel with other people, we should share it in a way that's consistent with the Father's heart, shouldn't we? We should share it in a way that's compassionate and not just condemning. That, that, that has a sting in it and says, no, no, no. Unless you have put your faith and trust completely in Christ, you cannot be saved. Unless you have repented of your sins, you, know, you, you must hate and forsake your sins. This is, this is part of what it means to be a believer. Unless that sting is there, then, then we're not truly preaching the gospel. But when we see despair and grief, we ought to say this is good and ask them to move on, like as, as the Father does, to draw them along the road of repentance. So what is true repentance? Spurgeon points out that it is born as a twin with faith. That when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we turn from our sinful ways and we turn to God and we begin to live a life of holiness. And so the two are born together. He says they are not of of questionable parentage. But it's hard to determine which of the two is older. Which comes first, faith, faith or repentance? And there are people who've got charts and diagrams and, 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 and lines of exactly how it happens and they've got it timed out to when. But, but think about it. We, we turn from sin and self and walking our own way and we turn to Christ. And in faith, we, we forsake our past. And in faith, we, we turn to Christ and we begin to live a life of holiness Faith and repentance are twins and they are born together. True repentance ought to make us weep to think of our past life. Not because we are unforgivable or or because God um, uh, 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 wants us to, to just be so nervous and anxious about the punishment that awaits those who don't repent. But we ought to weep to think about our past life and we ought to hate it. Of the self sacrificing, self giving love of Christ who died to pardon it. True repentance ought to have tears in its eyes as it says, My sin has been washed away by Jesus' blood. That's a praise. We praise God that our sins have been washed away by Jesus' blood, but what ought to then hit us is the reality that we so sinned as to make it necessary that Christ would die. Our sins brought that about. Repentance says that is horrible. Not that God would send his son to die in our place, but that we would be such wretched people that we would sin in such a way that someone would need to die to save us. And so true repentance is a mindset that makes us say we will avoid sin in our future and in our present because of the love of the one who died to save us. I turn from those things that put Jesus on the cross because they are wicked to me. I hate them. I forsake them. I leave them behind and I, and I say, Lord Jesus, you died for me. How would you have me live? True repentance is a mindset that, that makes me think about living carefully. Living like Jesus in the present and in the future and not following the lusts of my flesh or the things that, that people around me say, oh, that's good, just do it. Instead thinking, what would Jesus have me do? How would he have me live? Because I am grateful for the fact that he redeemed me with his precious blood. True repentance helps me hate sin. And let me, let me push against the idea that we are to love the sinner and hate the sin. I would say this, true repentance helps me hate sin in others sometimes as christians we can be guilty of coveting what other people do or the freedom right we'll say things like if i weren't a christian i would as if we are free somehow if we weren't christians as if the law is not is it is better to be free from the law rather than be constrained by god's commands and we think oh if we were like them we could be like them. Instead, true repentance helps us to think that we are brokenhearted at their actions and to think, I am so thankful that I know that's not the way I'm to live. Let me, let me, let me point something out about, okay, our brains are weird, right? You know, we often, in the middle of a, of a crisis or an emergency, you'll, you'll think like, what did I have for lunch? You ever, ever thought like that? Something crazy, like you're rushing to the hospital to go visit someone, and suddenly you think, like, you know, is the coffee pot on? You know, like, our brains just kind of throw thoughts at us. And I think that's kind of the way God designed us. Let me, let me, let me say this. if If you find yourself confronted with a thought from your flesh, you see somebody living in a way that they ought not to, whether it's, it's um, engaging in, in some kind of sexual sin or pursuing some kind of, of pleasure, or they've, they've attained something but in the wrong way, or, or they're, they're experiencing success that you tried for, and maybe they got there a way different than, than, than you would go because of your ethics where they're saying things that they ought not and they feel free to because they're not somebody who fears God and you find yourself in your inward self that you would never admit to anyone else jealous of them. Think of it this way. That is an opportunity to work on your own repentance in that particular area. Lord, I find myself drawn. I find myself jealous of this person's success. But I know, I know that that person, let's just talk preachers for a second, is not preaching the true gospel. And, and I, know that, I know that people are being drawn in and that church is growing leaps and bounds and there is no focus on holiness among those people from what I've heard. And I'm just, Lord, Lord, I find myself jealous of their success. Would you, would you help me turn from that? Would you help me hate that and leave it behind that I would ever think that I would want to be in that place instead of the place where I am, where you've put me. And do that with whatever jealousy rises up within you and hate and forsake it. Whenever we find a celebration of any sin in our hearts, we ought to bring it to him in repentance. Have you ever been watching a television show and, and two characters who are not married to one another, they're married to others, right? Right? Are you, you find that there's this budding romance there and the storyline is, is, is leading you to celebrate that and they're finally going to get together and you're like, oh yay, they're going to get together. Like you're being manipulated, right? No, no. I reject that. And Lord, I, I, I come to you and I bring to you this, this sense of 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 yes that i feel as i'm as i'm watching that happen and i pray that you would you would show me help me think through that guide and guard my heart repentance means that we are not at peace with our sin and we make war against the sin still lives within us listen to what paul says first corinthians 15:31 he says i protest my brothers by my pride in you which i have in christ jesus our lord i die every day. I die every day. Every day I put myself to death. And so seeing that repentance leads us to hate our sin and to forsake it and to leave it behind and to turn, let's just, let's, let's celebrate for just a moment thinking about that. The good news of the gospel is that if we come to God, if we hear the preaching of the good news and we realize that we've sinned against God, that, that, that we are out of fellowship with him, that, that punishment and separation is not something that's coming upon us but our present reality, which will only get worse when judgment comes, um, that we realize that we're separated from him and that we can have peace and fellowship with him if we put our faith and trust in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. Then we think being told your sins have caused the separation between you and God is a good thing. It checks us, it alerts us. And if we've not put our faith and trust in the gospel, it means that we have an opportunity to do that. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're just somebody made you come here, you know, you're just kind of hanging out, or you've been in the church forever and you're thinking, wait a minute, I am a sinner. And you've never said, Lord, save me from myself. Forgive my sins on the basis of the fact that Jesus went to the cross for me. Then you can do that now. You can put your faith and trust in Christ and be made righteous. But it's also good to be reminded as Christians that so often we don't choose to run away from the faith, but we drift away. And so it's good to be reminded to renew repentance and say, yes, Lord, I see these weeds of sin growing in my life. I'm going to cut them down. I'm going to nurture the good growth that's growing in my heart by the power of your Spirit. I'm going to engage that. Let's close by considering the glorious good news, and that's this. All those who repent and believe in the gospel enter the kingdom. What did Jesus say in Matthew 21 to the self-righteous Pharisees? He said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the worst of the people in that society, they go into the kingdom before you. Not that you can't get there, but that they are online, they have their tickets in hand, and they are going in at the gate, and you're just learning that you need a savior. You are far from them. That is good news to those who have sinned and fallen short. If you realize that you are poor in spirit of things to offer Jesus, there's good news. Matthew 5.3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we seek his kingdom through belief and repentance, we will have everything that we need. That's what Matthew 6.33 says, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Uh, a a gentile leader comes to jesus and says heal my servant who is sick and jesus says i'll come to your house and he says you don't need to do that just give the word and it will happen because i know that you're powerful i believe in your power and it says when jesus heard this he marveled and said to those who followed him truly i tell you with no one in israel have i found such faith i tell you many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What does it take to enter into the kingdom? Forsaking the false way and believing in the truth, being saved. Jesus says, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is born in the world through the presence of the person, Jesus Christ. And what we believe about him, what we believe about our sin What we believe and how we respond to our belief, how we put into action determines our destiny. What is our destiny? This is good news. Matthew 13, 34 says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So if you're here and you need to repent for the first time, let me urge you to do that. But if you need to renew repentance and to realign yourself with the gospel and with God's purpose, let me encourage you to do that as well. Martin Luther said that when Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, he declared that the daily duty of the Christian would be to renew repentance. So let me encourage you to do the business that you need to do with God, to repent And to renew your affections. To renew your desire to fight sin. To renew your walk with him. And know that when you do that, that you are living out the gospel in your life. And that is a good thing. God is pleased with you and you are entering the kingdom. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. We thank you for this message from Jesus. We thank you that that those who hate and forsake their sin... are those who have believed in the truth of the gospel. We thank you that that we do not need to present anything to you, Lord, except belief, which results in a change of heart. The thief on the cross could do nothing except hang there and die. And you said that he would be in the kingdom with you that day. Why? Because he recognized who Jesus was and realized his own sinfulness and put his faith and trust in him. And the same can be said of us. But Lord, why stop there? Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are created for good works in Christ Jesus. And that means that those of us who've repented and believed in you or those who are here who've repented and believed for the first time, there is a trail of good works which can be engaged and accomplished we can walk them out for the rest of our days. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help us to do it by your grace and by your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.